As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Wright Anything podcast. Well, hello and welcome back. I hope you had a good summer. I'm Justin Briley, Premier's Theology and Apologetics Editor, bringing you the show where I get to sit down with renowned New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. And the programme is brought to you in partnership with SBCK, Tom's UK publisher, and N.T. Wright Online, who publish Tom's online video teaching courses. Now, we've just been recording some fresh episodes of the show with Tom, so expect some really interesting topics coming up on atonement, parenting scandals in the church the role of feelings in the christian life uh, all things that you've asked tom questions about by sending them in also something that i think will prove very popular we're doing a special episode in which tom will be responding directly to one of his most vociferous critics john MacArthur. so look out for that in your podcast feed also plans in the pipeline for launching uh, an NT Write, Ask NT Write Anything YouTube channel as well, so that you can have access to all of the video versions of these shows that we've accumulated over the last few years. So, just some of the things coming up to whet your appetite. And today on the show, we'll be tackling questions on Jewish salvation. Now, if you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, do make sure to tell them about it. Tell them to subscribe at askntwrite.com. And if you haven't done that, well, shame on you. You're missing out on regular updates from the show bonus content and of course the chance to ask a question yourself and if you're able to click through to support the show there at the show page that would be massively appreciated uh, we'll send you the exclusive show ebook as a thank you which features tom's responses to 12 big questions again that's askntwrite.com it's enough from me for now on to today's show Well, welcome along to another edition of the podcast, and uh, it's great to have you back, Tom. You've been uh, having a bit of time off, haven't you, over the summer? Uh, tell us, tell us what yes, you've been up to yes. with family. Yes, Maggie and I took took most of the family up to the far northwest of Scotland, which was wonderful. Um, weather was mixed, but the sea is spectacular anyway. Wonderful, and you had a special anniversary, I understand, as well. Uh, yes, um, we can't quite believe it, but it is 50 years since Maggie and I got married. I mean, where did that go to? Um, it, it's quite a bizarre <laughs> feeling. Um, but yes, it was good to have most of our children and all of our grandchildren with us and uh, a, a good sort of good old-fashioned celebration yeah yeah well it's it's good to get away sometimes as well isn't it and just have a, a change Absolutely. of scene um back back in the oxford study though now um yep. and back for another set of questions uh that have come in uh and thank you for everyone who's 
been getting in touch uh, today. We're, we're looking at issues around Judaism, uh, Jewish salvation uh, is sort of the, the general theme here. Um, why don't we leap straight in with Anne in Australia, Tom, um, who says, do you think Jewish people are saved under the ancient promises God gave his people and prophets before Christ appeared? What's your thoughts on this? Yes, I mean, when I hear a question like this, my mind goes immediately to the beginning of Luke's gospel and to Zechariah and Elizabeth, um, who uh, uh, have held on to the promises of God and have obviously been a prayerful couple waiting for what God has promised to do. And then when they discover that uh, that they are that Elizabeth is going to give birth to John, who we know as John the Baptist, um, then this is a cause for great celebration in a classic first century Judaism setting. And then when Jesus is born and Joseph and Mary take him into the temple, you have Simeon and Anna who have been looking for the consolation of Israel and waiting for the promises um, to be fulfilled. And you have a sense that there were thousands and thousands of uh, devout Judeans in that time, uh, Jews living in Judea and Galilee, I should say. I mean, it's, it's all rather complicated in terms of where they were and who they were at that point, but who were praying the Psalms, who were reading the scriptures, and who were just trusting God, the creator, the God of Israel, that one day he would fulfill his promises. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth don't know anything yet about Jesus, um, uh, and um, Simeon and Anna in the temple only know that here is a little baby who they believe, they believe God has shown it to them that this is the one through whom the promises are going to be fulfilled. Um, and uh, that sense of waiting for God to fulfill his promises is absolutely central to so much of the ancient Jewish world as of the modern Jewish world and much in between. Now, you could then say, of course, well, Simeon and Anna, their hope then gets focused on Jesus. And so we should expect that now if wise Jews are studying the scriptures, saying, praying the Psalms and looking for their God to deliver them, they ought then to recognize Jesus as Israel's Messiah, like Simeon and Anna did. Um, but there's a mystery there, and the mystery goes right into the heart of the New Testament, and we find it everywhere from Mark's Gospel to uh, the letters of the Romans to all sorts of Hebrews to all sorts of other places, which is that they not all do uh, see, they not all do recognize Jesus as Israel's Messiah because a crucified Messiah was such a stumbling block, such a, a shock to them. And so um, I want to say as much affirmation as I can about that wonderful, noble, patient Jewish waiting on God. And then I want to say, so what happens when they hear about Jesus? And of course, part of the trouble is that when Jewish people often throughout the last 2000 years have heard about somebody called Jesus, it's been in a way which uh, has been dismissive of them, that we now have Jesus and you lot are uh, left on a back burner somewhere at best. Um, and that has taken an enormous amount of getting over and is still a major problem. And perhaps we'll come back to that in other questions. I do sense, though, that in this question, perhaps what's being referred to as well is there's a certain sort of theology that exists in some Christian camps of a sort of dual covenant idea that that um, there, there is still a covenant for the Jews and that which they will be saved under, as it were. And um, so yeah. we don't necessarily need to worry about sharing the message of Christ with them or, or whatever that may be. 
Um, what what do you think of that idea? Yes, uh, I've met that many, many times over the last 40 years as I've been researching Paul particularly, but also the Gospels. Uh, and there are some Christians who, particularly seeing the horror of what happened in the 30s and 40s in Germany and Poland and Austria and so on, in other words, the Holocaust, have said, we've got to back right off from that and just say out of shame and sorrow for what the so-called Christian West has done to the Jews living in its midst, um, that we now have to say, look, um, you have your own relationship with God, please get on with that, and we will do our own thing. The trouble with that is precisely that it plays into the problem which Paul was aware of right in the 50s of the first century, the danger of seeing Christianity as basically a Gentile movement. And seeing Christianity as a Gentile movement has been one of the foundations of would-be Christian anti-Judaism and then latterly anti-Semitism. We need to separate those out because the idea of Semites as a racial thing is a 19th century idea, but anti-Judaism existed long before the rise of that um, kind of quasi-social Darwinian ethnic theory. So just that's a, a footnote, but an important one in terms of how we speak about all this. So I then want to say, you know, when I meet, as I, I was privileged in the last years of his life to get to know the late rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, um, and discussing with him um, the, who God is, how we construe God's purposes in the world, there's so much convergence um, that, as Jesus said to the scribe in, in Mark 12, you know, one wants to say with humility and not with arrogance, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and then to leave that up to God as to how he deals with that. Um, but at the same time, uh, and I've had that experience with other Jewish friends and interlocutors as well, and uh, uh, some people listening to this may know the late great Jewish biblical scholar Alan Siegel, um, who uh, wrote a great deal and uh, remained a loyal Jew, but constantly was dealing with the early Christian evidence in a way which made some of his friends think that he was actually a closet Christian. So again and again, one has this sense of proximity of, of being, you know, cousins just across a, a boundary. But that's not a way of saying, therefore, we have Jesus and they have something else. Because that, as I say, is the beginning of precisely that dismissive attitude. Of course, it starts off being very welcoming and affirming, but actually it's then a way of saying, um, and, and of course, if you say we have Jesus, who is this Jesus? Jesus is nothing if he isn't Israel's Messiah. And uh, see, there developed quite early on, I think from the third and fourth centuries, a sense among some Jews that there was uh, a Christian Messiah, this Jesus who would take you to heaven, but they were still waiting for the Jewish Messiah who would put things right on earth. And that's a tragedy because it shows that the Christians had Platonized their tradition and had forgotten the, 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 the message of Luke 4, the message of, of so much of the New Testament that God has come in Jesus to put things right, not to say, forget this world, we'll take you away somewhere else. So the idea that there might be two messiahs, a Jewish one and a Christian one, is simply wrong historically. And we have to say either Jesus is Israel's messiah or he isn't. And if he isn't, then we Gentiles shouldn't be interested in him either because he's just a failed Jewish hero. So there are huge issues rumbling along underneath that. Mm. Obviously, at the local level, whether in Australia, as with this question, or in America or in Europe, or many, many other places, um, 
it behoves us to be very pastorally and personally sensitive uh, and wary of how we speak because many Jewish people are on the lookout for Christian arrogance. And sadly, we have often given them a lot of Christian arrogance to look at. And sometimes my critics have seen arrogance where none was intended yes. or, or I hope none existed. Yes. And so uh, it's a very touchy area. We're walking on eggshells all the yeah. time. But clinging on to Jesus as Israel's promised Messiah is absolutely central. Well, well, that, that sort of sense of, of how we should approach these types of conversations yeah. leads into our next question from John in California, who says, after hearing many of your lectures on first century Jewish life and worldviews, do you have any suggestions on sharing these teachings with modern Jewish people? It seems often that current Jewish worldviews are quite different from the first century and that sharing the good news of Jesus can even be treated as a form of anti-Semitism. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Uh, and and that, is, that is certainly the case, that um, uh, sadly, again, we have to admit to the tragedies of the last few hundred years that when Martin Luther believed he had rediscovered the gospel in the, uh, the early 16th century, one of the exciting things for him was that now that we've understood how the gospel works, we will go to our friends down the road or our neighbors down the road in the synagogue and say, hey, we've been getting it wrong all this time. Here's the truth of it. Now, of course, you will convert, won't you? And when they didn't, when they told him to get lost, then he kind of swung the other way and was really angry. And some of the bitter, vituperative language which Luther used of the Jews, sadly, remained, as it were, in the tradition, like a kind of a poison in the bloodstream of that tradition, which then burst out in the 19th and particularly in the 20th century. So we have to be very, very careful. And I mean, I've gone around these tracks many times. About 30 years ago, there were the movement called Jews for Jesus um, put up a sign in the tube in London, which said, Jews for Jesus, question mark, why not? After all, Jesus is for Jews. And the local Jewish communities in North London objected strongly and told London Transport to take this advertisement down, which they did. Um, which raises the question, so if Jesus isn't for Jews, then What's this about? And I, I preached a sermon, which I think is printed in one of my books, where I contrasted that with a terrible story, which was told by uh, a Jewish reporter um, who was was well known in, in broadcasting circles 30 years ago. His voice was very well known, um, who said as, as a young boy in New York, he had gone secretly to see Father Christmas in Macy's store. And Father Christmas recognizing that he was Jewish, had said, this isn't for you, son, go and see your rabbi. Um, and, and he had run home crying, a Jewish boy in a Christian country at Christmas time. Um, and those two things jangle against each other. Is Jesus for the Jews or isn't he for the Jews? Um, and I, I think the Jews for Jesus sign was probably insensitive, but ultimately that's the truth. Whereas what that Father Christmas said, this isn't for you, you've got something else, mm. is actually, mm. that's the really arrogant thing. So we've got to be mm. terribly, terribly careful. There is no kind of safe, easy way of handling this. Final question here on these issues around Judaism and sharing um, faith with Jewish people. Um, 
A question on Zionism from Jared in North Carolina says, do you think there is a biblical case for Zionism? And if so, how should we understand it against Israel's troubling efforts to forcibly remove Palestinians from their homes in order to place Jewish settlers, among other troubling actions? Um, Firstly, I suppose a definition of Zionism could be something like the the view that um, the return of Jewish people to a specific geographical area of land is somehow within the promises of God and part of the fulfillment of Old and New Testament promises. And therefore, there is obviously a significant movement within the Christian world uh, that supports um, the activities on the part of Israel to, um, as, it, as the questioner says, uh, take on parts of um, these disputed territories. So, um, yes, I suppose, do you think there is a biblical case for this and, and perhaps your thoughts on the, on the whole situation there, Tom? Yes, again, very, very difficult. I came into this one uh, as a cautious Zionist 50 years ago. When I first was aware of these questions, um, I had known about the Holocaust as a young man and have been horrified by it. And as a, as a teenager and in my early 20s hearing about these things, I had thought, thank God that they had a place to go and thank God that this was a way of fulfilling ancient promises. Gradually, through the early and middle 1970s, as I was studying the New Testament intensively, and not least Romans 9 to 11, I found myself pushed out of that position by the New Testament itself, and I have never gone back to it. And when in the late 1980s I was able to go and live in Jerusalem for a while, I had all these questions in my head and my heart, and I talked incessantly to both Jewish friends and Palestinian friends about them, So, um, which is a very confusing thing to do because everybody you talk to has a different angle, a different set of stories, uh, a different set of horror stories about bad things that have happened because of which dot, dot, dot. And I learned that we uh, ignorant um, non-Jewish and non-Palestinian Westerners actually have to do a lot of shutting up and a lot of listening. And I've tried to do that. Having said all of that, the New Testament is very emphatic that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. It isn't the case as uh, the movement called dispensationalism, one way or another, has argued that some of the promises got fulfilled in Jesus, but there were lots of others which had to be fulfilled some other way. And particularly in Romans, one of the great central texts of the early Christian tradition, we have the promise uh, to Abraham and his family. This is quoted in Romans chapter four, that he would inherit the world. And that retrieves the great Old Testament narrative, if you put Abraham and the Psalms together, or Abraham and Isaiah together, the promise to Abraham about the family and the land is expanded because in Psalm 2, God says to the coming great king, you are my son, this day have I begotten you, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the world for your possession. Now, in the first century, there were many Jews who saw the spread of Jews around the world as an advanced fulfillment of that. Philo in Alexandria saw the Jewish presence around the world like that, that there we are, we are being alike to the nations and so on. But the early Christians picked that up and kind of transposed it into a different key by saying Jesus is Lord of the whole world, 
precisely as Israel's Messiah. Read the Psalms, read Isaiah 40 to 55, and you'll see that Israel's coming king is Lord, not only of one piece of territory, but of the whole earth. And then that gets gloriously stated in Romans 8, where the inheritance is the whole creation. So to say, oh, no, no, that there's this bit of turf in the Middle East, um, and, and that's their real inheritance. Um, th- th- I think that's a, a multiple category mistake in terms of exegesis, in terms of theology, and in terms of real politic. Now, I have to say, faced with what happened in the 1930s, I think the global community stumbled for various reasons, but came up with what was ultimately going to be the only viable solution to create and sustain some kind of Jewish state. You know, some people even said that the Jews should be given another country somewhere. Some people even suggested give the Jews Uganda and that can be their national homeland. Well, you know, that was never going to work, um, quite apart from the fact there were lots of people living there already. But the, uh, the idea which some said at the time, not all, was that the country was empty, and so a people without a land could go and live in a land without people. That is almost blasphemous. There are people, and I know some of them, whose ancestral homes had been and still are in the land they called, as the Romans called it, Palestine. And there are many, many other questions which circle around all that. And as I said, in I wrote a book on pilgrimage called The Way of the Lord some years ago, and I did a little intro on this whole question. And I said, with everything one says in this area, we always ought to add, but actually it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, and, and there's no way one can simply um, bundle it up and say, there it is, job done. But this is where I would start. The New Testament promises that Jesus, Israel's Messiah, is the Lord of the whole world. And then we have to live with the ambiguities and the call for justice in the real world. And there's that passage in Deuteronomy, which says justice and only justice you shall seek. And there was a rabbi who said, why does the text say justice twice? Answer, because there must be justice for Israel and justice for Israel's neighbors. And my friend Naim Atik, the Palestinian Mm -hmm. liberation theologian, wrote a book called Justice and Only Justice um, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, expounding that and applying it to the present situation. That's the kind of road I would cautiously want to go down. Thank you so much for your thoughts and your wisdom on what is obviously a highly contested uh, area today, Tom, uh, and a huge area that we haven't done justice to, obviously, in this short chat. But thank you again for your time. And I look forward to catching up with you again on next week's podcast. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for listening today. Next time, we'll be looking at your questions on problems with the church, including some recent abuse scandals in the Anglican Church. Just a reminder also that SBCK, Tom's UK publisher, have some special deals on Tom's books for podcast listeners. Links for that are in the show notes today. You can find out more about the show at askntwrite.com. And if you're able to support and help bring Tom's thought and theology to many more people, we'd be delighted to send you the exclusive show email book 12 answers to questions about the bible life and faith that tom has written again that's askntwrite.com and just click on give for now thanks for listening see you next time